Well, good morning. I pray that you were well. Uh, I don't know what's going on with the choir. I don't know if they ran all the men off or what. Y'all didn't let them sing with you today? Just time to have little girls singing. That was nice. I like that song. Um, I invite you this morning to join with me as we gather around God's Word. Uh, we, we've been doing our work in the first book of the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew gives us an account of Jesus' life. And as he does, one theme is glaring. We, we talk about this theme every week. And, and so you know what's important, that Jesus is the great King of Kings. We see that theme constantly in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is the King that comes to usher in a new kingdom. And we've really been focusing on that. And every week I devote some time to just kind of going back and starting by revisiting re, uh, that context. Matthew shows us that, that Jesus has this uh, royal bloodline. That we see that the King Herod is troubled at the birth of a new king. Uh, so troubled that he kills all the male-born children in Bethlehem. The Magi see a star in the sky and travel to see this newborn king. John the Baptist steps out of the woods as a herald who would uh, tell the world that this new king is coming. And they, they should repent for that king's kingdom is at hand. And then Jesus goes in the wilderness to be tempted in order to prove that he himself is worthy to rule and be king and save his people. And then finally Jesus starts building his kingdom and, and he's, he's calling people to come and follow him and to live as citizens in his kingdom. And, and the Sermon on the Mount, which we got into last week, is an explanation to Jesus' followers about what it means to be uh, part of that kingdom. And so we spent the last two weeks exploring the, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is called the, the Beatitudes. <clears throat> and Jesus is he's beautifully laying out kingdom living. And he says, if you remember the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or in other words, those who know that they're morally bankrupt, that they've got no righteousness of their own. Blessed are those who therefore grieve their sin. Blessed are the meek who have been kind of tamed by this knowledge of their need for grace. Uh, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and the merciful and the pure in heart. All the, the character attributes of the Beatitudes, they all come together in, in, in kind of what is maybe the last character attitude of the Beatitudes, which is blessed are the peacemakers. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And we talked last week about what it meant to be a peacemaker, but it's not simply about avoiding conflict with people, but sometimes that peacemaking requires telling people things they don't want to hear so that they might be at peace with the Lord. And the very next verse, after going through all of these attributes of, of, of what, what kingdom characteristics are, we get to, to, to Matthew 5.10. Do you remember what Matthew 5.10 said? We'll put it up there. It says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and here's the logic, and we got into this a little bit last week, but the logic is, if you live by the Beatitudes, if you live the way Jesus is calling his followers to live, you will be persecuted by the world. And that's kind of where we left off last week. Jesus is teaching his disciples that they should, they should live as is citizens of his kingdom. And at the same time, he's telling them that if you do this, the world is going to persecute you. And, and we were forced to ask ourselves last week, where have we experienced persecution as a result of righteousness in our lives? And I think what we discovered is that very few of us are experiencing any persecution 
in our lives for, for following Jesus. And so we kind of had to check ourselves. Are we reaching out to the world or are we staying insulated in the church? Do we look any different from the world or do we look just the same? Uh, so here is today's idea, my friends. Um, that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And I know that that's, that's a cliche, but it's accurate. And if you want a quick summary of today's sermon, um, if, if you can remember this one thing, you're going you're gonna to have the sermon, um, and that is this. People who follow King Jesus in his kingdom should influence the world. I'm going to say that again because it's, it's just a great summary of the sermon. People who follow King Jesus in his kingdom should influence the world. Christians should influence the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but you're called by Christ to influence your world. You're not supposed to be a, you're not supposed to be a private Christian. That really doesn't, doesn't make sense. You're never supposed to be someone who never speaks about their faith while the wickedness of the world swirls around you. You're to go into the world and influence it. And I want to read with you this morning... Uh, the teaching of Jesus about the kind of influence that you should have on this world. And so what I want to do is let's just start off by reading that. I want to invite you to stand if you're able. We're going to read Matthew 5, verses 10 through 16. And before we do, let's, let's take a moment. We'll pause and pray together. Uh, Father, we do come to your word, uh, and, and we hunger and thirst for, for it. We, we, we want to be fed by your word. We want to understand the revelation of Jesus uh, in the truth of his kingdom. Uh, help this word to, to penetrate our hearts. Help us to be convicted by it and move to action because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name and the church said, amen. All right, well, let's read together, beginning in the 10th verse. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I suspect that you have heard those verses before. I suspect that this is one of those sermons where uh, you've heard it preached a thousand times. But I, I really wanted to focus back up just a few verses and focus on you hearing that in context, right? In, in context, Jesus is telling his disciples that they should expect persecution when they live out the Beatitudes. And when you're persecuted, what do you do? You don't stop influencing the world because of persecution. Instead, you continue to exert kingdom influence on the world. And, and Jesus gives us two examples of what that kingdom influence looks like. The Christian is to be salt and light in the world. And in some ways, the influence you have on the world is similar to the influence of salt 
and light. Look at verse 13. We'll just read it again. Um, it, it starts by saying this. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus tells his disciples that they're to be, to be salt of the earth. And, and I think a really fair question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be salty, right? Well, you know, we use salt to flavor our food, and, and some have suggested that Christians, uh, what Jesus is saying is that Christians are to be the spice of life, right? Uh, maybe so. I, I don't know. I don't think what Jesus was saying was, go out there, boys, and spice things up. I mean, I, I just don't think that was where he was headed with this. I think that maybe a better way to think through this question is, is to maybe get a little context of, of what historically uh, Jesus would have understood the use of salt to be, um, how, how salt was used in Jesus' day. You see, in antiquity, salt was tremendously valuable. The Greeks called salt theon, which is a word which meant godly. So it was so valuable that it was considered divine by a Greek audience, right? The Romans, on the other hand, uh, they, they had a statement where they said that, that nothing is more valuable than salt and sun. They were the two things in their culture that they found very, very valuable, salt and sun. In fact, salt was so valuable that, that in Rome, they used to pay their soldiers in salt. Did you realize they paid the army? That's the way they, they paid them. And, and so I think you probably heard the statement that someone's not worth their salt. Well, that came from the Roman army. You, you've got a good soldier, he's worth his salt. You've got a bad soldier, he's not worth his salt. Salt was valuable. And why was salt valuable? Why was it, so, why was it worth so much? Well, it's because salt has the amazing ability to slow decay. In the ancient world that didn't have any refrigeration, the value of salt could not be overstated. And it's always almost underappreciated by us today. If you lived in an ancient culture and you have food of any kind, that food is always going to be decaying. Always. Microorganisms are always going to be breaking it down and forcing it to rot and forcing your food to ruin unless it's kept cool or unless it's coated with salt. The way it works is that, that salt kind of reduces uh, the, the water content of the food, and in, and in doing so, it, it produces bacterial growth, and so the food lasts longer. And in a world without Walmart, food was scarce, and food was precious. You, you didn't just go and buy more. It had to be grown, or it had to be hunted, or it had to be raised. And, and you can imagine a scenario in your life where your neighbor brings you a, a, a slaughtered lamb, right? And your family, y'all can't consume that in one sitting. And so you immediately, you go to the closet and you get salt out and, and you skin the lamb completely and you take handfuls of salt and you rub it into the flesh of that lamb and, and a reaction occurs when the salt touches the flesh and, and the corruption and the decay of that lamb is slowed. Now, Here's the teaching of Jesus. It's basically this. The world is in decay, and the world is rotting. And the Christian is to have an influence upon that world that stops 
and slows decay. That, that is what it means for you to be the salt of the earth, to, to stop decay. You have an influence on the world. And, and, and listen, we can't do that if we never interact with the world. Like if we stay in our church, if we only have Christian friends, and we never like, have any contact with the world, you know, because salt has to come into food in order for it to be effective. And the Christian has to be somewhat in the world to help preserve it. So practically, what does that look like? How might it look for a Christian to slow the decay of the world? Well, first off, um, you have to live a salty life. And, and on the hills of the Beatitudes, we understand this to mean that you have to follow those, those Beatitudes. You have to follow the teachings and commands of Jesus. To be salty means that you're meek. It means that you hunger and thirst for God. It means that you're merciful. It means that you're a, a peacemaker. And, and you're probably experiencing some form of persecution. But if you're going to slow the decay of the world, you have to be living as those who follow Jesus Christ lives. Uh, let me give you an example, maybe, maybe a way to understand how this might work in the real world. Do you have someone, um, maybe a man or a woman that you know, and, and someone who really embodies this idea? They're, they're, someone you really respect because of the way they live their life. They're really a godly person, and, and you, you maybe respect them so much for the way they live. Do you have someone in your mind who kind of lives that way? Um, now, imagine you're, you're with your friends. You're out with a bunch of friends, and you're, and you're talking, it, and, you're, and you're joking, and it's that kind of talking and joking that, that you only do with your close friends. It's probably, it, it's, it's kind of gone into a crude conversation. You're, you're saying things that you would be embarrassed for others to hear, and up walks that person who you respect so much, who's a great representative of Christ. What happens to that crude and vulgar conversation that you're having? You change the subject, right? Because you don't want them to hear it. Because you're embarrassed that you're having that conversation to begin with. When that salty person is around, that's just it. Somehow their presence slows the decay of the world. I spoke with a friend this week who is, um, who's fostering two young children. And it was kind of an emergency situation. He was, he was telling me that like they weren't really planning on doing fostering all that often, and they, they weren't really prepared for this one. But, but these, these two little girls were placed in his home because the environment where they were living was unsafe. And it's really heartbreaking to think of, of, of the decay of the world when two young girls are unsafe in their home. And my, my friend began to tell me stories of these two little girls waking up in the middle of the night and they were screaming out in terror. And, and I don't know what these two little girls had experienced. I don't know if it was because they were in a strange place, but, but probably because of abuse in their life. But I know this, the foster family that had them was acting as salt. The dysfunction of the family is evidence of a world that's in decay. And at the point of decay, you find the people of God and their influence in the world through kingdom living by having mercy on these two little girls. And that's what it means to be salt. Christ-like living in contact with a decaying world and it slows the rot. When we are the church scattered, it's like throwing salt into a decaying world. 
we go out and we're all spread throughout our area. And the hope is all of us are on mission. All of you are being salty. The hope is that that you're not part of the decay. But rather you're exerting a kingdom influence. And the result is it restrains evil. It promotes honesty. Your influence should reduce corruption. That's as long as you remain salty, though. In other words, as long as you live as a follower of Jesus. And Jesus seems to clearly say here that if salt loses its saltiness, in other words, if we stop living as citizens of the kingdom, in that case, what does he say about the salt? That it's not really good for anything. If we quit living as, as, as kingdom followers, then in the same way, I guess we're not really good for anything other than, what does he say, is to be thrown out on the road and trampled under people's feet. So I want you to consider how you influence this world, how you are salt that, that preserves the rot of humanity around you. Look at verse 14 and we'll continue on. He says this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And once again, um, this is a verse about the way you influence and interact with the world. You are to be salt, which slows the world's decay. But, but you know what? You're also to be light in a world that loves darkness. So I think it's fair to ask, it's a fair question to ask, like, how is the world dark and how are you to be light? If you read your Bible, you'll discover that, that, that darkness symbolizes evil, sin, and despair. Like throughout the Bible, whenever you see darkness, you're really talking about evil, sin, and despair. And in Romans 13, 12, the way Paul talks about this is, is he says this, cast off the works of darkness, that, that evil, sin, and despairful acts, and put on the armor of light. And for Paul, this meant kingdom living. It's the same kind of beatitude living that Jesus is teaching. And, and so light symbolizes for us holiness, goodness. It symbolizes the truth of God. In, in a world that's in darkness and despair, they, defer, they, they desperately need the light of God. A world that is dead in the darkness of their sins needs the light of the gospel to shine upon them. But as much as the world needs the light, and here's what's so funny is, as much as they need the light, the world hates the light. Look what John 3.19 says, because it's going to put it better than I could ever do this. It says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There's, there's some, some aspect in which because their works were evil, the light exposes that. They'd rather do it in, in darkness. And it's not hard to look at our world and see that people would prefer to live apart from God because they love that darkness. They don't want to be exposed for what they're doing. In, in, in the great William Shakespeare tragedy Macbeth, uh, the main character, one of them, Lady Macbeth, had this line. And, and so I'm going to quote Shakespeare, but forgive me if I slaughter it because I'm a simple Texas boy. And Macbeth is a little bit highbrow for me, I've got to be honest with you, but, but I think the line's good. So here's what, here's what Lady Macbeth said. She said this, Come thick night and pell thee in the dunnest smoke of hell. You see, she, she, wants, she, she wants the darkness of night to come, Right? 
That's what she said. Come thick night, impel thee in the dunnest smoke of hell. I'll continue on. That, that my keep knife not see the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark. Right? right. She wants the darkness to hide her sin. She knows that if it's brought into the light of God that she will be found guilty. And this is why the world loves darkness. In the darkness you can do whatever you want and no one knows. But let's look more at light. John 8, 12. What does Jesus say? He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk, walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Jesus says, you want to know where, what light's about, what light comes from? You want to know the source of light, the source of hope, of holiness, of goodness, of truth? Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and I'm the only light of the world. There, there's a historical movement uh, known as the Enlightenment, and if you're a, a scholar in here, you're familiar with the Enlightenment. Uh, it was also known as the Age of Reason, The Enlightenment was an intellectual, and it was a cultural movement in the 18th century. And the Enlightenment emphasized uh, really reason, the idea of reason over superstition. And it it, it really emphasized um, science over faith, or especially blind faith. And and, uh, the idea that was that humanity could be the source of its own light. If humanity could just band together, right, and focus on science instead of superstition, and we could work to solve the world's problem. And and here's the idea of the Enlightenment, is that that every generation would have just a little bit more light, and and generation after generation would constantly be getting better through science and reason. How's that going, by the way? Does it feel like things are just moving in the right direction and that decay has stopped? Has the, has the Enlightenment figured it out? Of course not. Like, like the world is still sputtering in darkness because there is only one source of light. And as the world tried to reject it in the Enlightenment and find their own light, they find that there was no way to do that. Donald Barnhouse once said that um, when Christ was in the world, he was like the shining sun. However, like the sun, Christ was here by day and gone by night. But when the sun sets, what happens? The moon comes up. And if Christ is the sun, the church is the moon. Now here's here's what he means by that. Jesus is the only source of light. He's the only source of moral truth. He's the only source of righteousness. He's the only source of holiness and hope. And when Jesus walked on the earth, his glory and goodness shined like the sun. And people who were around Jesus for the first time were exposed and and, and they saw their sin, but they also felt his love and felt his grace. But when Christ ascended, his disciples at his church were left to reflect Christ's light in a dark world. But we don't have any light of our own. Like the moon that reflects the light of the sun, the church must reflect the light of Jesus. So the most simple explanation for what it means to be light is for you to radiate Jesus into the world. It's speaking the truth of Jesus into the darkness. 
If salt is preserving the world from moral decay, light is exposing the world to the glory and the hope of Jesus. Jesus wants you to put his glory on display in your life. So the image we have, the one that the Jesus uses, is that of a city on a hill. It's got towers. It's got buildings with, with lanterns and lights. It's all lit up. And, and, and people who are traveling far away can look up on the hill and they can see that city for miles and miles. And it says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way a Christian who knows Jesus is to live in such a way that the glory of Jesus cannot be hidden in your life. It, it's almost as if it is not even possible to be a secret Christian. You understand the same logic here. Jesus says it's not possible for a city on a hill to be kept secret. You can't hide it because its light gives it away. So the Christian is left to ask themselves, when people see me, do they see the light? Or have I somehow refused to shine his light? And, and here's how that happens. Verse 15 says this, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So, so my friends, if you're a Christian, you are to be like a lamp, and you've been set ablaze by, by Jesus. You're, you're shining a light. You're a moon that reflects his glory into the world. The problem comes in that some Christians refuse to let the light of Jesus shine forth from them. The way Jesus says it is it's like, it's like as if Christ had set them ablaze with a truth and understanding of the gospel and told them how to live, but instead they covered their life with a basket. And when they do this, they leave the world in darkness. And I don't know why someone would, would refuse to let the world see Christ through them. Can you, can you think of a good reason? Maybe it's fear of persecution. Maybe you don't want to talk about it at work because doing so would result in your boss being unhappy with you or there will be some kind of pressure. Maybe you're embarrassed. Maybe you think religion is a personal choice and you don't want to talk about it. Or maybe you think you shouldn't be trying to influence others. The bottom line is this. Jesus came as king. He came to usher in the kingdom of heaven. He came to shine light in the darkness. And on a hill near the Sea of Galilee, Jesus spoke to his disciples. And he told them how to live in his kingdom. He told them that, that, that doing so would result in them being persecuted, but they should shine their light anyway. Look at verse 16. It says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The hope is that by letting the light of Christ shine through us, that others may see our good works, and, and the result is that they would give glory to God. Now, we're hesitant to boast in our good works. We definitely are not to brag in our good works. We don't find salvation in our good works, but there is a way. What you do in this world to honor Christ can be observed by those around you and it can bring honor to Jesus, and it can cause others to worship the Lord. So, so what does it mean for you to shine your light? 
Well, I would say this, that when you love your wife and kids and your, or your husband well, the world gets a glimpse of Christ's light. When you work hard at your job, harder than you're supposed to maybe even, you spill forth light. When you're generous to others, when, when you're humble, when you're meek, when you abstain from sin, when you show mercy to those who are miserable, you take foster kids into your home. The kingdom of heaven is on display in you. And the light of heaven is, is for a briefest of moment piercing the darkness. But as much light as you can shine with your behavior, at some point the Christian has to be willing to open their mouth. You have to be willing to proclaim the mighty works of God. They have to speak of the hope of Jesus. You see, kindness can get you an audience with others. It can. Kindness, people love to listen to someone who's kind. But kindness cannot tell them that they need Jesus. At some point, you need to be able to express the gospel. I I think what's interesting is, is Jesus was telling his disciples that they are to be salt and light. He knew that he was leaving, and he was leaving them to influence the world. And by the power of his spirit, boy, did they. You know, boy, they, they, they did it. And, and listen, if it, if it wasn't for the 12 disciples, who else did he leave? And the thought is the same for Rankin County. The thought is the same for the reservoir. You're the one sitting in the church. You're the one hearing the message that it'd be salt and light. If not you, then who? Let me conclude with this summary. Jesus calls you to be salt and light. He calls you to have an influence and an impact upon the world. Either the world will be influencing you or you will be influencing the world. One of the two things is going to happen. Either you're salt and you are influencing the world to preserve a world that is in decay or you're going to be decaying alongside the world. Either your light is going to influence the world that is in darkness or the world is going to be dimming your light. My friends, the Lord is calling you to be a people of influence. Be in the world and not of it. Be salt and light for God's glory. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we do thank you for this call upon our life to be both salt and light, to, to, to be in the world but not of it. Uh, And so we do pray by the power of your spirit that that you would make us like Jesus. You would make us uh, a witness uh, to him in our world and in our nation that they might give glory to God as a result of it. God, be with us as we go. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.